we tend to give praise and we often have awe for the things that we think are powerful. To give praise to something or to have awe for something is to express an approval or even an admiration of something. So how do we do that? What does that look like in our lives? Well, with music, we, we buy an album. We put it in the player, or if you don't do CDs anymore, or whatever it is you use, electronic stuff. I heard records are back in style. But you buy the album, and you put it on, and you listen to it over and over again, as if you're giving your approval to what you're hearing each time you play it, or your admiration of the thing, whether it's the words, or the poetry, or it's the instrumentation, whatever it might be, or with sports. You know, when, when we see power in, in sports, we have an excitement. We jump out of our seats as we cheer. Even we lose our voices because we cheer so loudly. Because we're so excited. And we do this with celebrities. We go to their movies. We even start to dress like them. As they say, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Or with books. We read it. If you have, a, you know, you give praise to a book because it's good or something like that, you have an admiration for it, you give your approval to it, you buy the thing, you put it on your bookshelf, maybe you read it again. Or with art, we do this by hanging it on our walls. In politics, we give our approval or our awe or possibly at times even praise to that politician that we might go to the polls for and vote for. What are the things that you tend to give that type of approval and praise and awe to with your life? What are the things that you are tempted to worship with your life, even? I'm not saying that because you cheer for a sports team or you like a certain music album, that means you're worshiping it. But you might enjoy it. You're giving approval to that. But the, but the fact that all of us do this type of thing, maybe not in an inordinate way, or in a way that we would be praising something over God, the fact that we do that with many things, you, you go to the mountains, and you go to the Grand Canyon, or whatever it is, and you, and you behold this seeming power that just stands before you. You're thinking of a storm that rolls in the front as it passes over. You feel the, the energy in the air, so to speak, or the wind that comes as the power of the thing comes over. That's not necessarily that you're worshiping the thing, but the fact that you feel that, that you have that kind of sense of awe, or you have that type of excitement about something, or that you imitate somebody that you look up to, all of that ultimately is telling you and me that we were made to give approval to something, that we were made to give admiration to something that is greater than ourselves, something that is more powerful than you and me, something that is more beautiful than you or me. Something that is more true than you or me. Namely, those little things that we give admiration to or imitate or give awe to, it shows that we were made to worship God. What He has done. That we are to worship who He is. So again, that exhilaration that you feel as a great play in football or basketball comes, or you hear that announcer that's just getting so excited, start to use that exalted language, glory. That's kind of how the world approaches sports sometimes. You know, we get really excited, pumped up about stuff, right? 
And we see that thing. We start to give awe to that thing. We start to give almost even praise and admiration to that thing. Well, this is what we're considering this morning from Psalm 21, that we were made ultimately to stand in awe and to sing and praise the power of something. And you can guess what it is, because we're a Christian church, right? We gather not because of our own glory or the glory of men, but of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the display of God's glory and salvation through judgment. That's what we were made for. So as you get excited when you catch a fish or when you get excited when you, uh, when you get your test done, kids, at the end of a semester, when you get spring break or you get a Christmas break or whatever it might be and you feel that excitement on that last day, it's just a brief little glimmer of the excitement and the joy that you were made for that, that extends beyond anything that you can imagine or think of, which is the glory of God. Follow along quietly as I read Psalm 21. Psalm 21, verses 1 through 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days. Forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad. With the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them a blazing oven when, they, when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you. Though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Oh, friends, I wish that we could stay here for the next number of hours just to consider more and more of the, the depth of the beauty of this text. Now, the big idea of this text is this. God's people sing and praise His power that's displayed in His work of salvation and judgment. God's people sing and praise His power displayed in His work of salvation and judgment. And salvation and judgment cannot be divorced from one another. God accomplishes his salvation of the king and of his people through judgment. Opening up the psalm, it drops open into three main parts. Verses 1 through 7, verses 8 through 12, and then verse 13. So verses 1 through 7, it's outlining the salvation of God's king. Verses 8 through 12, it describes the judgment of God upon his enemies and the enemies of his king. 
And then verse 13 is describing the praise of the choir, as it were, or the congregation that is singing, that is led by the choir master that we read about in the superscription up above, where the congregation or the choir sings for God's powerful work in salvation and judgment. And these are the points of my sermon. Number one, friends, praise God for His work of salvation. Praise God for His work of salvation. The second point is this, praise God for His work of judgment. Praise God for His work of judgment. And then the last point is this. The life of God's people are bound up with King Jesus. The life of God's people are bound up with King Jesus. And it's my prayer that God would powerfully work in each of our hearts to sing and praise Him for His power and His strength that we see in His salvation and wrath. Well, that leads to the first point. This, again. Praise God for His work of salvation in the King. Praise God for His work of salvation in a King. And this psalm is a picture of a King rejoicing in God. It's a psalm of David and David's writing of a rejoicing King. He's boasting in the strength of the Lord, Yahweh. That you see that Lord in all capital letters there throughout the text. That Lord, it's Yahweh, the I Am that I Am. The one true and living God who eternally exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. In the text, it works backward to the ground and the foundation of the king's rejoicing. So verse 1, look there. If you don't have a Bible open, I would encourage you, just open up a Bible. If you keep it open, keep your finger in the text. It'll help you throughout the rest of the time that we have. But look at verse 1 again. That verse is giving a picture of a king who is rejoicing and exulting in the strength of God exhibited in his work of salvation. Now look down to verses 2 through 6. And there in verses 2 through 6, he's outlining the gifts that God has given the king in response to his prayers. And in verse 7, it gives the source and the ground of the king's praise. Look at that there. For the king trusts in the Lord. And that conjunction therefore can also be translated as therefore or as because. Because it's marking off the foundation in the beginning of verse 7, that for, for the king trusts in the Lord. You know, that, that for, therefore, because it's marking off the foundation upon which everything that came before it is built. And the text, it's, it's hammering into my mind, into your mind as we read this again. You see that for, again, occurring in the, in the text. It's hammering into our mind that there is no room for boasting among men. Look at the gifts that God gives in verses 2 through 6. Number 1 of verse 2, the heart's desire of the king. The second gift is this, the request of the lips of the king. The third gift in verse 3 is rich blessings to the king. Verse four, or Number 4, a crown of gold for the king. 5, the life the king asks the, the Lord and, and the length of days forever and ever. Eternal life. Number 6, Forever blessedness. Remember Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. And we see here in this text that the fulfillment of the blessed man, of the happy man that we consider from Psalm 1, is God's king. Number 7. You see there. Gladness and the gift of God to the king. Gladness with the joy of the very presence of the Lord. And laced through this text, in the midst of it all, of these gifts, we feel this grammatical weight 
and momentum growing through those four. So you see it in verse three, for you, so the Lord, meet him with rich blessings. And they see it again in verse six, for, or because, or therefore you, the Lord, make him the king most blessed forever. And then again, as if the, the anvil falls with the full breath of its weight in verse seven, it's the root and ground of it all. The object of the king's trust is not in himself, but it's not in his own ability. He's not looking within himself to conjure up somehow a power to face the difficulties that he sees in his life. His hope is not in himself. His hope is not to look within and get the power somehow within himself through positive thinking or something like that. This text is not giving us a self-help model describing how we can get a better life if we just cowboy up or try a little bit harder or think happy thoughts. No, this text is forging a picture of how God's steadfast love alone is the ground of the hope of his people. And David, he's writing as a king here, but he's also referring to a king in the third person. As if somehow the king, while referring to himself, is also outside and beyond himself. So as he writes, his language lifts up beyond himself. And as verse 7 exposes, David is writing with the posture of a king who is living his life in the presence of the, the power of a promise that God has made. The king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast, and when you see that steadfast love or loving kindness of the Lord, that's the language of covenant in the Old Testament. And through the steadfast or covenant loving kindness of the Most High God, Elyon, he, the king, shall not be moved. Really? And David would face death. And by saying this, though, that David is not saying that he would never die. David's coming death was part of God's promise to him. God would establish his covenant promise, not finally in David himself, but in the coming offspring that would come through his line, that would sit on the Davidic throne forever. And David, again, he would eventually die, but God's covenant promise in establishing David's throne forever would never die. So when David starts writing of eternal things, he's not exaggerating. He's not using poetic hyperbole. No, he's leaning upon the unchanging power of God to establish what he promised to David through his offspring that is to come. King David's greater son, even as we sang about earlier in that hymn. David writes that in, in this dual reality here, God is sustaining David, he's saving David from his enemies and establishing David's throne and his lineage in, in his present real life existential reality experiences of his life. Yet God is also doing something in and through David that will outlast his earthly life. David is an arrow that is pointing beyond himself to a king that is to come. Verse 2, look at that again there. It says, You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Friends, that's a direct answer to the, the prayer that we read and considered last week in Psalm chapter 20, verses 4 through 5. Keep your finger in Psalm 21, but look back to verses 4 through 5 of Psalm 20. There it says this, May he, the Lord... Grant your, you your, the king's heart's desire, and fulfill all your, the, the king's plans. 
And then you see the, the choir, the congregation shout there. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your, the, the king's, petitions. So we see that. Look at verse 2 again in 21. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. But this psalm, it's more than a fulfillment of the previous psalm in Psalm 20. David has asked God again and again for many things as we've been considering the psalms. Remember, Psalm 3, you've got the first two psalms. It kind of sets up. It's like the introduction to the book of the, the psalms or the Psalter in the Bible. And then in Psalm 3, it's the beginning of, of the pleas of the king as he's facing trials, as he's facing enemies that come up against him. So in Psalm 3, verse 7, it said this. Listen to this request and plea of the king in Psalm 3, 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 4, verses one, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Psalm chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. Make them, the wicked, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels, because the abundance of their transgressions casts them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you, let them sing, ever sing for joy, and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. Psalm chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? We've considered this again and again in the face of slander, begging God for vindication. And we could go on and on. In the petitions of David that we see in these psalms, uh, we see the petitions of a king that is coming also that would sit on the throne of David. God has given David his heart's desire, but his heart's desire didn't rest in himself, but in someone beyond himself, someone that God has promised would come through his family. Look at verse 4 of chapter 21 again, of Psalm 21. He asked life of you. So the king asked life of you, God, the Lord, Yahweh, you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. Now friends, David's words, can you see how they extend beyond himself here in this text? Eternal life. Verse 6, for you made him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Can you see again, he's connecting that blessed man of Psalm 1 to, him, to, to the king. And the hope of not just him and his own life as the king of Israel, but the eternal king that has eternal life that is to come. And the one who is truly blessed, eternally happy, and full in God is the eternal king who comes through the line of David. The one who has eternal life in himself. The one who is eternally happy. The one whose heart's desire and requests that God will fulfill fully and establish completely forever. The king who trusts Yahweh and who shall not be moved because of God's steadfast covenant love. 
Can you see how David is speaking both of himself but also beyond himself in this text? And look at verses 3 and 5 again. For you meet him, so for you, the Lord, meet him, the king, with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. God meets the king with rich blessings. God crowns the king with fine gold upon his head. The king has great glory through God's salvation. We don't get a sense or a whiff that salvation in any sense comes from any other source except for God in this text. God bestows the king's splendor and majesty. Now, friends, David is a prophet. David is a prophet. He's speaking of the greater king that is to come. Listen to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. The Apostle Peter says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him, with, with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah. The anointed one, the Christ, and he was not, uh, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Well, the Apostle Peter in that text, in Acts chapter 2, he's quoting Psalm 16 in saying this. Oh, but we're in Psalm 21, so what's the, what's the connection there? Well, In Psalm 21, David is saying that God has fulfilled the king's requests of life and giving eternal life. And David's saying that God has not withheld the the request of the king's lips. The king's requests are fulfilled in the gladness of God's presence and in making known the paths of life to David. And friends, that's exactly what Psalm 21 is saying as well. It's resounding with the same Content in many ways of Psalm 16, the salvation of God's King is fulfilled ultimately in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm is pointing at the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the King who would come, who would rule from David's throne, even as Jesus taught that everything written about him in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So friends, give praise to God. Give praise to God for his work of salvation through King Jesus. That Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that none of us have lived. He died the death that his people deserve, bearing their guilt and their sin. Though he was sinless, when he was without sin, he bore the sin of his people on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that his people might become the righteousness of God. He came to save his people. His name would be Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. So friends, give praise to God for his work of salvation, of saving David in his life and establishing this promise, but fulfilling the promise fully that he made to David in his greater son, Jesus Christ. So friends, let this song lift up your heart in rejoicing, exulting, singing, and praising God's power in establishing King Jesus, giving eternal life through King Jesus. 
and seeing the power of God manifested most clearly in King Jesus. And consider how this song can be your song as well. By seeing how it's an arrow that's pointing to David's greater son, Jesus Christ. This leads to the second point. Give praise to God for his judgment. Give praise to God for his judgment. Look at verses 8 through 12. And this is the other side of God's victory and salvation of and through a king. Embedded within the salvation of God's king and of his people is the necessity that God would judge. Wrath and punishment for those who are aligned with God's enemy. Verse 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. And fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. So verses 1 through 7, we're in the present tense. And now verse 8, it hinges to the future. You can see those verbs starting at verse 8. Will find out, will find out, will make, will swallow them up, fire will consume them, will destroy, they will not succeed. You will put them to flight and you will aim at their faces with your bows. And this can be a little bit confusing at the first reading of this text, but the the you and the your pronouns in verses 1 through 7, uh, we're talking about the Lord. But now in verse 8, with this, this hinge to the future tense, the you and your pronouns are now talking about the king. And in verse 9, the Lord is in the third person. And so you know, the, the Lord, whereas before the third person pronouns were referring to the king. So here we see the work of God in the actual reality of the life of the king. God's work is not separated from the life of the king. Yahweh, the Lord, the most high God, Elyon, is powerfully at work in the actual life of his king as the king fights his enemies. And the first half of the psalm, it confirms how God worked in the past and the present to coronate a king and enthrone a king with a crown being set upon the head of a king. But in the second half, God promises that going into the future, though the actual life of the king on David's eternal throne, uh, through that life of the king on his throne, God will conquer his enemies and the enemies of all of God's people. God's judgment will come. And God's judgment will come through his king. Look at verses 8 through 12 again. And this time as we look at these verses, I'll remove or replace the yous and the yours with the king. Alright, so look at verse 8. The king's hand will find out all the king's enemies. The king's right hand will find out uh, those who hate the king. The king will make them as a blazing oven when the king appears. The Lord will swallow them up. 
in his wrath, and fire will consume them. The king will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man, though they plan evil against the king, though they devise their devise mischief, they will not succeed. For the king will put them to flight. The king will aim at their faces with the king's bows. Verse 9 makes it clear that it is the Lord that is actually doing these things, though. But he's doing it through his anointed king. And again, this is pointing at the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately. And even as the people of God sang this psalm after David's death, so we see that the expected king of God uh, to come in these future tense verbs ultimately points even beyond the life, death, and the resurrection of Christ into the final judgment. This is a foreshadow of the future coming wrath of God. But first, stop and consider who the enemies are. Who are the enemies in this text? The enemies of God's king, the enemies of God's people, the enemies of God. Who are they? Well, friends, this this text is a warning to each of us. God's wrath is coming through his king for those who hate the king. And hating the king doesn't necessarily mean that people are picking up weapons to hurt other people. Hating the king may simply be trying to be a good Iowa nice person. Just a nice, kind Midwesterner. Doing their civic duty. It may mean simply setting up a greater love fixed not on Christ, but a greater love fixed on our kids. Or a greater love fixed on our family. In our sin, we are enemies of God and of His King. And we, friends, our hearts are tempted to enthrone so many other things other than God and His King, Christ. And it may just be that your heart subtly loves things in this world more than you love Christ. It's a, it's a posture of the heart. Hating God's king could refer to a full-on atheist, the undecided agnostic, or even the person who believes in God, has a high esteem for Jesus Christ, but will not submit their life, their whole entire life, to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Haters of King Jesus may simply be marked out like the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, that is neither hot nor cold, it's lukewarm. And what will the Lord do? Who spit them out of his mouth. Or as, as James wrote, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So friends, examine your friendship with the world. Examine your your relationship to the things in your life. Is it to the level that you have made yourself an enemy of God because you will not obey Christ? You will not submit this area of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To be an enemy of God doesn't mean that you're a militant atheist. It may mean that you're a good Iowa nice person who simply works hard and loves your family. 
Work and labor, friends, to know your heart. Is Christ enthroned upon your heart? Is your hatred for Jesus Christ disguised as imagining that you're a good person and you're trying to please God by doing good things? Beware of the coming wrath of God through his king. And the might of the right hand of Christ the king who is enthroned at the right hand of God who will find out those who hate Christ. He will find you out. He will find each one of us out. Friends, there is coming a day when there will be a great separation of, of mankind. Jesus said this, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's a metaphor. It's a harvest, a metaphor that God will separate those who are his and those who are not. And those who are his, who are owned by King Jesus and a part of his kingdom will be with him to behold him forever. And those found outside of his people will be cast into hell bearing his eternal wrath that we deserve for our sin. Our confession of faith for our church says this. We believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution, that a solemn separation will then take place, that the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy, and that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. And friends, how can we have a righteousness who are unrighteous? How can we be found innocent who are guilty? How can we be found clean who are filthy? We need a substitute. We need a savior. We need Jesus Christ. And that's why he came, to save Sinners, lost and ruined by the fall, save sinners like us, to redeem us, to be his people. And some claim that there are two different gods in the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, the God that, that, who's wrathful and angry, and the God of the New Testament who is loving. But friends, that's a lie. There is one true and living God. And he is unified and harmonious in his attributes of his perfect justice and and wrath, his judgment, but also of his his love. And those two aspects of who God is in his nature and his attributes, they are not in contradiction with each other. God's judgment is an evidence of his love. He will hold all evil and wickedness to account. God will perfectly judge what is unfaithful and wicked and evil and untrue. And God's perfectly just judgment is evidence of His love for His people and that His love for His people is unbreakably true. And ultimately, He has accomplished the salvation of His people through judgment. This psalm is driving at this. So friend, if you're here this morning and you have not given your life to Christ, you have not submitted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Lordship of King Jesus, if Jesus is not the Master and Lord of your life, friend, be warned. 
at the haunting image of verse 12. Let that drive you to repentance, to turn from your sin. Look at that again at verse 12. You, God's king, will aim at their faces with your bows. With the king's bows. You may think that you're living a good life. You may think that the the good things that you do might somehow make you acceptable to God. But the reality of your life is that you are walking with an arrow that is pointed in your face. The powerful wrath and judgment-filled weapons of God are trained not just vaguely in your direction, but between your eyes. How else do you think that God would guide the stone that would kill Goliath from the sling of David? That's the day when the, the release of the tension of the bow was left for that wicked, unrepentant sinner. Come to terms with this reality, even as Psalm 1834 says this, Yahweh, the Lord, trains the king's hands for war so that his arms can bend a bow of bronze. This isn't just a mere bow of wood. Jesus Christ is the mighty king of God who has the strength to bend a bow of bronze trained on the faces of the wicked. And the stronger the bow, the more urgency there is to repent. If you think of a bow that's being taut with the tension, if you try to hold that tension too long, your hand will begin to shake because you cannot hold it. Oh, but God... He is all-powerful. He can hold that tension of the bow as long as He wants, but we don't know the time or the day when it will be released in His just judgment and wrath. Friends, God's wrath is coming. And we don't know the day or the hour, but each day we must be prepared. And friends, each day let's warn our friends and our family. Repent, turn from your sin, obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't put off turning from your sin and trusting in Christ another moment. Friend, today, turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Every day, as long as it is called today, do not harden your heart in the deceitfulness of sin. Turn from your sin today. Trust in Christ. And friends, if you're a believer here this morning, this is the daily, hourly posture of our lives. Turning from our sin having Christ enthroned as king in our hearts. Turning, turning, turning from sin and turning, turning, turning to King Jesus. Finding refuge in Jesus' great might, finding refuge not in the wrath of, of God with the arrow that's aimed in our faces, but in the protection behind the mighty hand of Jesus as he pulls the string of the bow. It is in Jesus Christ that God executes his judgment for sin. Psalm 7 verse 12 says this, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. Friends, again, repent of your sin. If you're here this morning, again, you're not a Christian, you're not trusting in Christ, turn from your sin. Friends, if you're here this morning, you are a Christian, turn from your sin. Obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by trusting in the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And behold the beauty of King Jesus. He bore the wrath of God that his people deserved. Christian, this this arrow of the bows that we see that are trained on the faces of the wicked that was designed and crafted for you, aimed and set at your face, that those weapons were released in the face of King Jesus for you. 
and me. The tension of the string, the might of the bronze bow, the thwack of the might of the arrow making contact with its target was borne by Christ upon the cross. You can almost even hear the, the contact of the arrow as it hits Christ figuratively, metaphorically, as the nails are driven through his hands and his feet, as the spear is poked in, piercing the side of beautiful King Jesus as he is raised up to bear the wrath of God for his people. The weapons of God trained on his enemy and upon the enemies of his king were exhausted in Christ for those who repent and believe. He bore it for you. He bore it for me. Enemies of God, like us, can find forgiveness for our sins. Salvation from God's eternal wrath by putting our trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turning from being enemies and, and, and lifting up the great heavenly congregational praises. And the, the, the congregation at the end there in verse 13 sings of God's power in his salvation and in his judgment that we see accumulating throughout the course of Psalm 21. All of this is through Christ alone. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. The just wrath of God that we deserve as enemies of God was taken by Christ in our place. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you can have this salvation if you have turned from your sin and trust in Jesus. King Jesus has done this. Jesus was without sin. He was perfectly holy. He was blameless before God the Father. And yet he took in himself what he hated to save enemies like us, those who are deserving of his anger and of his hate. He took for us. Jesus Christ's hand was, he, he found out all of his enemies. Jesus Christ bore all of this for his people. His hand was, he, he found out his enemies and, and those that hated him, he found them out and he bore the just judgment that they deserve for his people. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God in the blazing oven that his people deserve. That language of the blazing oven, it almost brings back to mind that Sodom and Gomorrah is as Abraham looks over the hills and from the distance it looks like there's smoke as if it were from an oven that's rising from the distance. So Jesus bore that for us. The Lord Jesus Christ was swallowed up by the eternal wrath of God that his enemies deserved. He was consumed by the fiery wrath of God in the place of his people. The Lord Jesus Christ faced the pulled arrow and that was aimed at the faces of his people. Friends, again, if you're turning from your sin and trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how can you not sing verse 13? Look at that verse again. Be exalted, O Yahweh, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Can you see the power of God exercising the judgment of God upon the Son of God in the place of wicked and ruined sinners like us? Does that lift up your heart to sing praises of His power? We will sing and praise your power. Oh, don't wait for the Lord's Day each week to do this. But friends, if you do not turn from your sin and submit to Jesus Christ as the King and Lord over your entire life, you will face this power of God to execute his judgment upon the wicked in you forever in hell. Even as King Jesus has been given life, length of days forever and ever, 
so those who face God's judgment and wrath will be given death. The curse of God. Length of torment forever and ever. So friends, turn from your sin. Be found in the salvation of God's King that he has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's the last point. The life of God's people are bound up with King Jesus. How then shall we live? The life of God's people is wrapped up with their king. That's one of the reasons we considered this from Psalm 20 last week as well. But this is one of the reasons why the congregation is singing of the king. And singing that God would answer the prayers of the king. That the Lord would do these things through his king. Because as the king goes, so go I. So goes his kingdom. King Jesus Christ bore God's wrath for his people as he died upon the cross. The crown of thorns that were beat into his head with a reed have given way to a golden crown upon his head. Jesus Christ has given his people eternal life. The eternal life that was in him, he has given it to them. If you are a Christian, you are trusting in Christ today, friend. He has given you eternal life. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life through whom we might look forward to the gladness with joy in the very presence of the one true and living eternal God. And like King Jesus, we trust the Lord through his steadfast covenant loving kindness promised to David and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God unites his people with his king. The union that we have with Christ. If you know nothing as a believer of the union that we have through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, friends, start, start looking for, look for a book. I think even later tonight at the evening service, I'm going to give away Redemption and Accomplishment Applied by John Murray. Just do some reading about how Christ has united his people unto himself. God's just judgment has fast-forwarded fast to his people in the cross of Christ. The final judgment for his people is exhausted already In the cross of Christ, the one time for all time sacrifice on Calvary 2,000 years ago. The verdict for the sin of his people was given at the death and resurrection of Christ. And the verdict was this, righteous. We sing that one hymn, before the throne my surety stands. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Righteous is the declaration. Righteous is the verdict, though I am unrighteous. Innocent through his unstained innocence. Jesus conquered our sin and Satan upon the cross. Listen, listen to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. And catch this, is the union that a believer has In Christ, made alive together with Him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. God's King. The promise that God made to David, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so now, friends, if you're trusting in Christ, we live in the reality that he has already won 
our salvation. That's the point of the Bible. Jesus, King Jesus, wins. He has already won our salvation. And that all the things that were written of the King in Psalm 21 are fulfilled in Christ. But, friends, we know this all too well. We are not finally home yet. We are exiles in this world as we wait the final return of our King and as we eagerly long to behold King Jesus face to face. We long to know Him even as He fully knows us. We long for that day when we can walk by sight, not merely by faith. And brothers and sisters, persevere in Christ in the midst of the pain and the difficulty that we see and face in this world. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-12 through 12 again. We read this earlier in the service. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Get that union that we have in Christ. Glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, we by faith in Jesus Christ are united with him. You remember what Jesus said to Paul as he was going to kill Christians. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those Christians over there? No. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, you know, that church in that town? Is you're going to Damascus? No. No, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We see this at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. We see this in Colossians as well, that the church is the body of Christ. It's amazing to think of that broken sinners like us would be counted as part of the, united to Jesus Christ. In his victory, we get to taste, not because of anything that we have done. King Jesus, friends, is victorious. God has fulfilled all of Christ's petitions, and yet we face trials in this life as we wait for Christ's final revealing. Friends, people will still make fun of you because you're believing in Jesus Christ. Kids, do you know that? At school or in the neighborhood, wherever it might be, friends might make fun of you because you're believing in Jesus. 
People still get offended when we warn them of God's coming wrath for their sin. People still bring lawsuits against God's people for seeking to quietly and humbly obey God's word as they do their work. People still try to kill Christians because of their faith in Jesus Christ. As Jesus said this, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-16 says this, Beloved, oh, and that's just an encouragement right there, that we are loved by God. Beloved. We should start talking to each other like that. Beloved. I have a good friend, Thabiti Anyabwile. He says that all the time uh, to the congregations that he'll preach at at times. Beloved. Oh, but anyway, he says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you, and this is part of our union with Christ, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That, so that, you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Look at the blessed man is somewhat happy if you're insulted because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So friends, as we leave this place today, find encouragement in the fact that God will fulfill all of his promises to us as his people. The suffering that you may face by identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ is worth every second. God's final judgment is coming. So friends, let's pray that each other, that we would, that God would make us worthy of his calling. And that he would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that he would be glorified in us. And us in him, according to God's grace. And sing that verse 13. Memorize that verse 13 as we leave this place. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So what do you give awe to in your life? What lifts your affections? What drives your joy and celebration in your life? Give approval and commendation and exalt the name of Yahweh, the one true and living God and of his King Christ. Give glory to God alone for his work of salvation and for his work of judgment and all through King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the way that it shows us of your faithfulness, that though we break our promises all too often, that you never fail in what you say and what you do. God, we give you praise that this morning that we can know of forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Christ. I pray for anybody here this morning that is not trusting in Jesus Christ, that is not submitted to the Lordship of King Jesus, that they would turn even now. 
Oh God, we pray that you'll be magnified in the humble repentance of a people. Give that gift today that you alone can give by the power of your spirit to convict of sin and to point to the hope that we can have in the cross of Christ and to believe in his death and resurrection. Oh, Father, we pray that even as we face trials in this life as well, as believers, that you would, that you would hold us fast. Even as we'll sing in a few moments, that you hold your people fast. You are our hope. You are our king. You are our rock. You are our refuge. God, we praise you for your power. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.